It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week, I speak with Tony Robinson. Tony is an author, a preacher, and a church consultant. He was a local church minister for nearly 30 years and wrote the book, Transforming Congregational Culture, which has had a huge impact on many churches across the country. Tony and I talk about many things, but one of them is the way in which a preacher can wind up in a sort of a spiritual fallow place and what it's like to push through that and to preach through that and how a congregation can help inspire and ignite their preacher's faith. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, and I'm glad to introduce to you, if you don't know him already, Tony Robinson. So, Tony, one of the things I've been thinking about is you've spent your career out on the West Coast in really what I believe are the most secular parts of our nation, right? Yeah, the old joke is that all the white stuff on the Rockies is people's... uh church membership certificates that they dropped off as they uh, headed west. <laughs> Did you grow up in the Northwest? Are you native to that part of the country? I am a native. I didn't grow up there. I was uh, born in Oregon. My family's from northeastern Oregon, fairly rural area. Uh, but when I was uh, quite young, my family moved east. So I grew up in the D.C. area, which was a, a great area to grow up in. But uh, it was also an area that was very transient. There were a lot of military, a lot of government, political people. And uh, so I always kind of looked to the Northwest as home and uh, eventually went back there. Were you a church family? Were you? We were. We were. We went to uh, Rock Spring Congregational Church in Arlington, Virginia. I was back there a couple years ago to preach at their 100th anniversary and uh, recalled some of the people that had influenced my life there. Uh, it was a, a liberal congregation in the best, uh, best sense of that tradition. Uh, remains a strong church. Uh, when you say the best sense of the liberal tradition, when you look back on your childhood, so this would have been, not to hazard a guess at your age here, but um, what decade were are we talking about? 50s and 60s. So at that era, like what, what did the best of the liberal tradition in the church look like when you look back on it? Um, well, I think it, it seemed to be a place where uh, intelligence and compassion uh, were, were partners. And it was also a place uh, or community that that took some risky stands. We, you know, that was the era of civil rights and that kind of thing. And I remember a couple things. One was um, the church uh, was was involved in picketing some local theaters uh, that had segregated seating. You know, white people could sit in main floor and black people were in the balcony. And and so we were involved in that as as young people. And then. I think when I was in eighth grade, uh, we started going to church camps in the summer that were intentionally integrated, and that was that was kind of a big deal in 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 Virginia. In uh, and there were there were some threats to the church and that kind of thing. And my my, my parents, not being from there and being probably more liberal themselves, uh, were quite supportive of that and. And then I remember uh, we would go into D.C. Uh, as a church youth group or something like that uh, to go to black churches, and that really had a profound effect on me. I, I felt like I was just, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, simultaneously uh, in the Bible and, and in the world, uh, in, 
it, the, the civil rights movement, really, a lot of it, I think, was shaped by uh, Scripture and by the Exodus story in particular. And it was a kind of preaching I was not used to. Uh, so uh, my church was instrumental, really, in involving me in some of the great uh, movements of that time. And, and yet it was also a place uh, that I experienced, I guess, in the language we'd use today as a safe place, uh, which I didn't particularly find high school to be. Uh, I went to a very large uh, high school that was, uh, uh, you know, always state champions and this and that, and and it was uh, it was a pretty competitive environment, and uh, you were kind of slotted into different social uh, classes within the high school, depending on uh, income and who you knew and all that kind of thing, and and uh, so uh, the church, which drew from several different high schools, uh, was a third place for me. Did you feel you had this positive experience of a compassionate and intelligent community that was, to some degree, activist and was getting you out into the world? Did you feel at 16, 17 years old, this is how I want to spend my life? Or did the call to ministry come to you? Um, It crossed my mind at that time. uh, And I think remained there as a kind of uh, germinating seed. I went on um, and eventually went to graduate school in history and I, I came kind of like uh, within a hair's breadth of, you know, doing a Ph.D. And it was European cultural and intellectual history. And, and I but I, uh, I decided I wanted to be involved with people in a little more holistic way. I wanted to teach in a more holistic, way? holistic way than than you were in uh, in uh, in the academy. And. Uh, and so I kind of went back at that point and uh, and reconsidered ministry as a vocation that seemed to me to be involving teaching. I've always kind of liked the rabbinic notion of ministry as a field-based or a community-based uh, teacher or scholar, and uh, you know that can be a little highfalutin, but but I I, I do uh, revere that. When you made that decision um, in your own ministry, you've really held on to that scholarly dimension, right? You've published a lot. You've written a lot of books. You've written books that have been very helpful to other pastors and preachers, um, myself included. How did, as opposed to being off in an ivory tower somewhere, thinking these deep thoughts, even as you're writing these books and producing this material and doing that teaching nationally and locally, you're also doing the nitty-gritty of regular everyday church work, trying to get budgets balanced, um, trying to make sure you've got enough toilet paper in the building, visiting people in hospitals, and really in the thick of it. How did those two things inform each other for you? Did it feel like radically different aspects of the same, or was it kind of all integrated? Um, well, I, I guess I would hope they were, yeah, and I think they were integrated. I often hear clergy complain about what we call church administration. And, uh, you know, like that's... Um, some somehow beneath us, and the really important stuff is, um, you know, uh, these wonderful sermons that we preach, if we do, uh, or uh, this deeply transformative pastoral work, or something like that. Uh, I, I, I think they kind of all do go together. I always thought of uh, administration as uh, kind of uh, a part of the pastoral care ministry of the church, if things aren't reasonably uh, well put together, um, 
you know, people don't feel safe and, uh, and they don't feel like it's a reliable or a trustworthy environment. So I, I, I wasn't uh, a super detail person, uh, but I always made sure that somebody was. And, um, and uh, I, so I, I think those things are important and I, they keep us grounded in a way. I mean, it, something is wrong if, if you're the only one that's doing the plumbing or worrying about the furnace, you know, uh, other people need to be involved in that. But there's a kind of um, reality check I think in uh, ministry that um, is is good for us and or good for me at any rate. And if I only uh, were uh, operating at, at kind of a very high plane uh, in terms of uh, uh, doing only certain tasks uh, and never having to get my hands dirty, I, I think I uh, I would have been a uh, you one would not be as, uh, as good uh, or as real as a minister, you know. I think that there's, for, for intellectually minded people who go into pastoral ministry, there's the temptation to slip into a, I don't know, into a sort of like brainy nether world and then turn Christianity into, into almost a sort of Gnostic way of yeah, knowing. Yeah. And there is something about the realities of church life and the physicality of it that... Um, well, it kind of echoes the incarnation, right? Yeah. Well, scripture and incarnation both draw you back to that. I mean, if you you can't be too either cerebral or gnostic or uh, quote unquote spiritual, and yet you know have all these really nitty gritty stories. I mean, starting with uh, the the birth of Jesus is a pretty uh, down to earth kind of thing, uh, and uh, so to speak, and. Uh, you know, uh, all on top, you know, all, all kinds of stories of scripture draw you into the nitty grittiness of life. So the, the, the distinction between, uh, uh, an earthly realm and a spiritual realm is a bad distinction. Uh, they're, they're infused for us. And, and yet we build some of that into the life of the church with, uh, like we have, uh, you know, groups that are concerned, say, the deacons with uh, spiritual health at church. Then we have the trustees that are concerned with the, with the budget. Uh, and and those, uh, those distinctions don't always help us. Uh, or we have congregational meetings where, you know, we say a prayer at the beginning, and then, and then it's as if um, uh, God is excused from the meeting and uh, uh, we will go ahead with our usual uh, uh, ways indifferent really to what, uh, what, what God may be asking of us. I, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've grown to love, even though in the moment, sometimes I protest against it. Like I'd rather, you know, if you were to ask me at the start of a work week, would you rather spend 25 hours sitting in your office reading a book this week or would you rather go, you know, look at somebody's wounds in the hospital? And uh, I think back to my first church, I would shovel through the sidewalk, you know? And, um, and I was glad to get away from that. Yeah. But there's a way in which I miss it, too, that the, um, those, those physical, grounded tasks, I think, keep us honest and keep us in a strange way in relationship to Jesus that, you know, just reading a book in my office yeah. is never going to pull off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Benedictines, you know, the uh, have a right idea in terms of uh, uh, contemplation and work in the garden, and uh, 
I, you know, one of the reasons that I ministry appealed to me was that you could do a lot of different things. And if I had to spend my whole day in a, in a study or in an office uh, reading books, I, I, I wouldn't like that. I, I'm an early morning person, and I like to read in the morning or write in the morning. But by late morning, uh, I want to I want to get out. And by afternoon, I was often doing pastoral calling or things out in the community. And and uh, so yeah, that balance uh, was was important to me. And uh, you know, sometimes uh, you really form relationships with people around around. Uh, f- projects around uh, doing stuff physically, whether it's uh, building a habitat house or uh, doing a community garden project or those kinds of things, uh, and, and, uh, or even just setting up for a special service. I mean, I you know, can remember some very uh, meaningful times with uh, people in the congregation as we kind of got ready for, say, a Monday, Thursday service or something like that. When you look back, how long have you been retired from the pulpit now? Well, I did. I, I served churches for about 30 years. And then for 10 years, I, uh, so I guess I've been 10 or 11 years uh, retired from the pulpit as an every week uh, enterprise. Uh, I was, in those 10 years, I averaged doing about mm, 40, 45 events a year. So, and oftentimes I'd be preaching as a part of those. So I was still preaching quite a bit. What is different because I wasn't, preaching to a one community week after week. Yeah, I've heard you say before that you think good preaching starts with good listening. Yeah. When what did, what do you mean by that? What do you listen to? Well, I think to? when I when I started preaching, I was I was uh, arrogant enough to think I had something important to say that people need to listen to. And, and then I kind of had an a, an attack of anxiety about that, which was uh, well, uh, actually you, you don't have that much to say and now you're going to be called upon to say something every week. How in the world are you going to do that? And uh, so I got uh, kind of anxious about that. And then in my first kind of experiences of regular preaching, I was uh, I was serving a, a small Presbyterian church in upstate New York while going to school at Union Seminary. And, um, and, the, and the preaching uh, class that I was a part of then, a biblical preaching seminar, uh, the the professor was very much into emphasizing, you know, you've got to listen to the text, and you've just got to live with it, and you've got to uh, you've got to you've got to um, struggle with it. Uh, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, this is the bread of life, and you've got to chew it, and you've got to break it open. And uh, so that was new to me, and I found that I found that very interesting, and a, and a good challenge to the idea that I would just go kind of, uh, uh, you know, glean something out of the New York Times or out of what I'd been reading lately, and then I would scatter these pearls of wisdom over the uh, over the congregation. No, uh, they weren't that interested in that. Properly so, they were interested in somebody who they gave the time and the privilege of time to. To, to listen to the scripture on their behalf and to uh, and really ask that old question, is there a word from the Lord? Uh, Isn't that, that fascinating too that in churches like the ones you've served, that might not have been articulated that piously, right? Right. Um, or even articulated at all. Yep. And yet people keep coming back and keep showing up. And it isn't for 
the way, you know, it isn't because their pastor is so wise, right? It's because God is speaking through Scripture. Yeah, God is speaking through Scripture and speaking through uh, through us occasionally. Uh, and uh, and I think that's what people are there for, even if they wouldn't articulate it that way. This was a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian church where they were a little more, that language uh, came a little um, more authentically. But I do think that, and this is one of the things that concerns me about preaching today, is that I think a lot of the preaching I hear, and probably some of it done, is is a little bit uh, too much of, of human wisdom, uh, is, is a little too much of the wisdom of the day, and and not enough waiting on a word from the Lord. And uh, as you've heard me say in other contexts, one of the things I have taken to kind of noticing about my preaching and others' preaching is uh, who is the subject of the verbs. And uh, I feel like a lot of times in uh, the subject of the verbs has become us, we human beings, and what we what we think or how we ought to think or what we feel or what we what we should feel. And I think at least sometimes, you know, if, if you take Scripture as a guide, God is the subject of the verbs. God is, has done something, is doing something. And often what God is doing is quite surprising and not the way we thought God ought to behave or should behave or would behave. And, and that's where it gets juicy. You know, I, I love Eugene Lowry's uh, question he, he, when he said, you know, come to the text and you ask, what's wrong with this text? You know, and we and we so often turn the Bible into something kind of uh, pious and predictable and, and frankly boring. And uh, so I think you know, kind of uh, finding ways into it that that uh, that that grab you. Uh, no excitement for the preacher. No excitement for the congregation. One of the things I've thought over the years as a as a technique to keep me on my toes is to approach a text and ask myself before I start. Who do I think God is? Right? Mm. Well, how do how would I describe God? And I mm. always, you know, years in, I go back to these sort of like, you know, the, all of what Feuerbach argued against. Well, God is like me, but bigger, grander, wiser, smarter. And then I, I take those assumptions or, you know, check myself. That's how I walk around acting most of the time. And then I say, all right, how does this passage push back against that, deflate it, challenge it? Right. And almost all the time, the way God is revealing God's self in Scripture is not in accordance with my assumptions about who God is. Right. And people can really hear that if we if we acknowledge too that we have been caught in this and and that we too uh, instead of here I am and, and here is uh, the truth about God uh, which God and I are both in agreement on um, that no uh, God has uh, has surprised me once again and and you know, acted through a person that I thought it totally impossible, and and you know, a, a really bad idea of God's. But God does it again. Uh, you know, that that kind of thing, people I find can can hear and identify with, um, and um, you know, because it's real. Yeah, yeah. Have you found over the course of your own ministry? Have you seen like the kind of preaching that you heard as a kid in the fifties and sixties? all the way through the kind of preaching that you're hearing as a consultant now, you know, with years of, of parish ministry under your belt, has the, has preaching in the main line changed a whole lot or has it remained? Obviously it's going to always be reflective of the culture, but have our emphases changed? It seems to me like 
relatively recently, there's been a strong impulse toward kind of correcting some of our liberal Protestant excesses. Um, but maybe that's just in the small group of people I'm talking to. Um, you know, I guess one of the things I think about uh, the church world today uh, is that it, there's, there's so many different ways to do it. Uh, and um, so it's, it's hard to generalize. But I, I, I would say that I think in the, in the 50s, maybe in the 60s, there was a kind of security uh, in the church, in the pulpit, uh, that uh, isn't there today. And that cuts two ways. Um, it, it, and by two ways, I mean one, on one hand, it, it, I think you see people trying things uh, with a with a kind of um, a, 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 of self uh, disclosure and uh, in, and and a kind of experimentalism and maybe an edgy quality to it that 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 can be very good in terms of content content and presentation uh, but it also cuts the other way is that sometimes people seem to me to be bending over backwards to um, uh, to uh, look um, interesting or to be doing something different for different sake. I mean, there's an awful lot of people today that seem to be wandering around uh, the sanctuary as they preach. And um, I, most of those that I've heard doing that, uh, I, I wish they would just uh, focus more on what they're, what they're saying and less on how they're saying it. I, I think, the, for me at least, the message has driven the 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 medium of communication if i have something to say if god has given me something to say that feels exciting or important then the rest of it kind of will take care of itself sure i can always uh, tweak it but if you haven't got something to say uh you can you can work on all kinds of little techniques of whether you're going to walk out in the congregation and look people in the face and you don't have a manuscript and and you know and all those things uh are just um peripheral yeah uh so uh i i i wish uh, some things seem to me to need to stay the same which is the struggling with the text um listening to your own life listening to the lives of the community uh and and i um uh and just doing something that's kind of uh different for different sake doesn't uh doesn't doesn't strike me. When you look back on your thirty years of of regular everyday Sunday preaching to or every week Sunday preaching to you know fixed congregations, um, now I'm I'm supposing something here that that is rooted in my own experience and maybe wasn't in yours. But for me, I've been preaching for sixteen years, and during that time, I've experienced times where it all feels electric. Not that every Sunday goes great, but that God feels present and alive and a part of what I'm trying to do, and I feel motivated by God and close to God. But I've also gone through periods where it's not that I'm going through the motions, but that my spiritual life, my religious life, the quality of it waxes and wanes, and and I can contribute to that. I can be neglectful of the kind of disciplines that it takes to to I think you know feel God's presence or be aware of it anyhow. Uh, but also sometimes it just feels like God has withdrawn from me. And yet, I got to get up in the pulpit. When you look back on your career and your experience, if you did experience times where, where God didn't feel close, 
Did you just push through those? Did you did you absorb them somehow and reflect them? What did you do in the face of those fallow spiritual periods, if you had them? Um, I, I did have them. I, I did uh, at one point uh, in my second church, which had kind of a rough go, I, I, I had a bout with depression. And, and so it was really, a, uh, it really was a slog there for a year or two. And, um, and I, you know, I remember somebody saying to me, uh, some psychiatrist or something, you know, maybe you ought to consider another line of work. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I, I kind of hung on tenaciously and I kept on doing, uh, the things that I knew to do. Uh, and I probably sought some other, um, I mean, I remember starting to go in that time in my life to a for the first time to a retreat center run by some Mary Knoll sisters and kind of the Ignatian model of retreats. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that was very important to me. I think I had experienced success in my first church and, you know, Tennessee Williams has this great line, uh, uh, success and failure are equally disastrous. Uh, and and so I, I kind of just thought I could pick that up and do it again in, in someplace else. And that someplace else had had been traumatized itself. Uh, my predecessor, uh, this was never really processed in the congregation, had taken her own life, and and so there was a lot of a uh, lot of stuff going on there. And I was young; I was 31, and it was complexified by the fact that that particular congregation uh, had about 30 uh, people living on the grounds of the church. It was in Honolulu, and. And uh, so it was that it was an easy thing to do. It was before living on the grounds, homeless people. Yeah, or? homeless people, and and um, so I, I at that point, um, most of them were either mentally ill or, or addicted. But I didn't know that. Uh, only after some time did I become a little more sophisticated about that. But I I would I would show up in the morning, and there would there would be people waiting on my doorstep, and. Um, and uh, I, I had a naive uh, uh, view of this situation. I would say that uh, that I could be more helpful than I could be. And when when things didn't snap into place as quickly as I hoped, uh, I, I was kind of overwhelmed. So I was in a I was in a period of uh, a kind of a dark night of the soul at that point that I count as useful because what I or more useful isn't the right word is really transformative uh, because I came to rely more on, on the Holy Spirit and, and on God for ministry than on my own uh, uh, wits and uh, skill. Uh, I think that so, word tenacity is really important. That we are going to run out of steam and out of energy and hit those points. I mean, it's a com- in my conversations with other clergy people, it's a common occurrence. And I, and I, and I tend to see it with people who are more or less at the stage in their careers that I am in right now. Um, and, and ask the question, and you've heard it too, you know, is, is this the wrong career for me or is this the wrong church for me or yeah. what exactly yeah. is happening here? Yeah. Um, and I like that notion of hold on to it. Yeah. Keep, Go back to the text. Go back to your people. Go back to the pulpit. I will counsel that. It's funny, and I've, I've never made this connection before, but I've said to people from the pulpit um, in sermons over the years, look, this, there, are, there will be plenty of Sundays where you walk out of here blasé or irritated or 
feeling worse than you came in maybe even. Yeah. And the answer to that is to come back. Just keep on coming back. Yeah. And this place will, this tradition, this religion, the presence of Christ, the church will ultimately, um, the scales will balance out in the favor of resurrection and life and joy. And um, I realize I'm speaking to myself. Yeah, you know? sure. Like, um, and that's one of the weird privileges of, of parish ministry is the way in which I don't really have a choice. I guess I could go become a salesman or something, but I don't have a, I'm going to be here no matter what. I don't get to have the luxury of saying, you know what, I'm going to give up on church for the next, you know, six weeks, three years, whatever. Well, and I think this goes back to the question you raised earlier about the, uh, the beauty or the peculiarity of, of this, this vocation. Um, it, 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 it's fruit is yielded in the long haul, both for, uh, both for, ministers and for members of congregations and you know you don't if you're if you're coming for um a quick fix uh, this may not be for you but it's amazing what how the church forms lives uh for those of an open heart uh to to really make extraordinary people you know and they're often uh you you don't um and I guess that's another privilege of the ministry is you get to see how extraordinary these people are who are just kind of passing among us as ordinary people all the time. And yet the things they've lived with, lived through, their capacity to, um, to, to, be, um, to be generous, to be um, uh, imaginative in the face of, uh, to be compassionate in the face of uh, suffering, it, it's, it's awesome. You know, and I, f- I feel sometimes like uh, God said, this one, uh, this Tony Robinson, he's, uh, he's going to have trouble really believing in me. So I'm going to put him uh, with these people in the church. And, uh, and I think they're going to teach him something, you know. Uh, so it's a, sometimes I feel like I am the ye of little faith. Isn't that true? And you yeah. look out and you see people's, from the pulpit, you see people's faces. Yep. And they, their faith galvanizes yeah. your own yeah. right? or, or yeah. elicits it. I um I think about that notion of learning from the saints of the church. It um I see that all the time. One of the places I feel like I see it is in marriages. Um over the course of my own ministry on several occasions I've seen couples where and it up and the examples I'm thinking of upend some of the gender stereotypes and, and the sad facts of of the way men tend to, you know, fall apart and die faster than women do. But um but I've seen on a couple of occasions Marriages where, from a distance, it looks like your, you know, sort of typical marriage of two people in their late 70s, early 80s. And then in these instances, both of these times, the, the women have had strokes. And these men who really, for, from what I could tell, were pretty reliant on their wives in terms of being cared for, it looks like, and I've seen in the intimacy of their own homes, on a dime turn and are there in a caretaking, nurturing, just sticking with it, fidelity yeah. way, that I do think that they've learned that from church. I remember years ago, I had this couple in my office who were fighting. They'd been married for like three years, and they were fighting all the time, and they were trying to figure out what to do. And I don't pretend to be a marital therapist or any kind of therapist, but I, I met with them a couple of times, and I was listening to them, and there was an elderly couple in the church who were... Um, would often bicker with each other in public. You know, they were kind of comfortable with their back and forth. And uh, Steve and Elsie. And um, 
so this young couple is trying to figure out whether, you know, how to stop fighting and whether this means they shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. And there's this silence and uncomfortable silence in the room. And we're just sitting there. And then he says, if Steve and Elsie can stay married, so can we. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. And it was like, it was just. Yeah. Yeah. You need, uh, you need, you need models. Yeah. You need uh, examples. You need uh, people who are, have a little further down the path than you and, Church has certainly offered that uh, for me. I think also back to the theme we've talked about of of the of the particular beauty of ministry. Um, you know the the passage in First uh, Samuel where it says God does not look upon outward appearances but on the heart. And in a way, being in ministry with people over time, you get to see a little bit of of the heart. And uh, if there's you know maybe something we offer to to our culture today is that um, it's very easy to look only on outward appearances and you might say in an image-driven culture that outward appearances uh, acquire a much greater importance uh, uh, than they've had before or ever before as people kind of um, you know they are their image or they they try to create a certain image or were asked to fit a certain image and I really do feel like in the church you you get a chance to look upon the heart uh, in, in in a way that's a little bit like uh, the, the way God looks at us, you know. Uh, it's a beautiful thought. And to think, yeah, I mean, everyone these days via social media too is, it, is, is tempted to present themselves as their persona, as their resume. And, and um, it's a, I, I can't help but think that's a good like evangelism line. You know, <laughs> come in and see people's hearts. Well, um, and and the other the other part of that is to acknowledge that as the church can too become quite complicit in in presenting just persona, and and clergy can come quite complicit in that. I mean, I do think is uh, that ministry is a dangerous profession, uh, and and it, it you know you can uh, just become this persona, and and not uh, really. Uh, be in touch with your own heart, which may be a troubled heart or a broken heart, uh, and you may not show your true heart to others. And so I think that's one of the positives I see in this time is is there is sort there's more permission uh, to be honest about uh, at least in some settings I think about your own um, your own the truth of your own life, the truth of your own heart. How do you strike that balance though, where you like? You don't go to the dentist and anticipate the dentist complaining about his own teeth to you. Yeah. Um, and there is that way in which we're called to be professional people yep. of faith, yep. right? Yep. And it's not that we want to like like pretend that we don't have doubts, but I've often struggled with that balance between not getting my sort of emotional needs met and my need to be seen in the fullness of who I am by my congregation. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, trying to have some sort of authenticity and not just be my persona. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know that there's, <coughs> excuse me, an easy answer to that. But but I do think, you know, the line uh, in Paul in Second Corinthians, we preach not ourselves. Uh, so it the point is not um, a look at me. The point is, I'm a broken uh, uh, pot through whom you may see the, the the transcendent light of God, and oftentimes it is the the broken places, you know, uh, that where the light shines through. So I think being uh, true to ourselves 
and, uh, and, and being aware of ourselves, but in order to point beyond ourselves uh, uh, to uh, the transcendent power of God, which is not ours, the extraordinary power of God, which uh, is, is, uh, is not our own. And to get that awareness of self, perhaps not from your own parishioners, but from, you know, for those of us who are fortunate enough to be in good marriages, you know, from, from, from spouse, partner, kid, therapist, secular friends, right. To, to receive that input. Yeah. Yeah. To re- and I think that's, yeah, that is a, uh, an important, I, I say sometimes in the, the leadership work that I do, I say, you know, it's, a strong ego is important, but not a big ego, and there's a difference. Uh, and a strong ego is is willing to entertain and able to entertain some 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 challenge, some feedback, some even rebuke at times, cautions. Uh, a big ego is not, frankly. And uh, so I think that's uh, it, and it is important to have those people in your life who can do that for you. Uh, it's it's a and I guess those are, to, to contradict myself, those can and ought to be church members too, right? I mean, if if we're ignoring the feed, the critical feedback that we're getting from the people that we're working with the most closely, that's pretty stupid. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the, they need to be, uh, the, the people we give that kind of access to, uh, we need to be a little cautious about because there are folks uh, I think I mean, we ought not be too vulnerable. Uh, there's, as with many things, you know, yes, vulnerable is basically good, but uh, I, I at least sometimes have been too vulnerable to the critique of, of those who's, who really had their own agenda and their own stuff, and uh, I would allow it to lay me open in a way that was I needed to, to have a boundary there and, and just say, be able to say to myself, that's really about them, that's not about me. And I think that's an important survival skill in ministry, uh, is, to, is to be able to take in uh, helpful critique and criticism, to not, be, to not be, have walls up against that, uh, but on the other hand, to not have so few boundaries that you uh, are overly um, jerked around, as it were, by by people's feedback. You need to know who you are, and you need to be uh, reasonably comfortable with that. Or else, um, in ministry, you know, you, the old uh, saw about the uh, uh, being like at a, a Whistler's convention, a dog at a Whistler's convention. You're just running to and fro uh, in response to whatever people are saying, or uh, the latest popularity poll or something. In like terms that. both of praise and of criticism. Praise right? and criticism, yeah. 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 Praise and criticism. So all of those things, both praise and criticism, need to be taken with a big grain of salt. And it's hard to see, I couldn't agree more, and, and I've learned that the hard way myself, and it's hard to see sometimes how um, when you're trying, not necessarily just to be a people pleaser in that sappy way, but trying to serve the institution and, and, and do what it needs to have done, and then also have that have the response be a negative one. I, I'm thinking about uh, when you're talking about your church in Honolulu and, and just how 
we get called into churches and and you don't it's a pig and a poke totally i think and you don't necessarily know you can see on paper you can read the history you meet the people but you don't necessarily know what the personality of the church itself is and i think back to the very first church i served the the church was was in trouble sort of in terms of like the number of people there and the lack of money and the needs the building had and sort of these you know vectors not coming together in a good way and what they said to me over and over again was we need this church to grow you know that's really what has to happen and I took them at their word and did what I could um which wasn't rocket science they hadn't ever evangelized you know and and so we did and and I remember one Sunday standing there and there were it was remarkable it remains a remarkable moment in my own life as a pastor but there were you know, dozens of people joining the church that day uh-huh, uh-huh. in a church of dozens of people. Uh-huh. And I remember feeling like I did it, you know, yeah. it, it, like a little kid bringing home straight A's or something. Like, yeah, yeah. And I looked out at the faces of the dozens of people who were there when I started and they looked pissed and, and, and upset. And I realized, you know, and I couldn't figure it out. I remember feeling so disoriented, like I've done exactly what you wanted me to do and and you're it's upsetting to you somehow and you know it took me years to figure out well of course you know this was threatening to them and and this church maybe didn't actually really want that to happen they just thought they needed it to happen and yeah yeah people are so wonderfully complex including us and uh that's why i said you know about my naivete as a young pastor and and uh what people say they want and what they really want are uh, are often two different things, and learning to listen uh, for what they're not saying as well as for what they are saying, is it's it's just such a wonderful, uh, challenging thing. But in a naive way, uh, you know, you do like, well, you said you wanted this. Here we are. We're doing it, uh, and, and you're pissed off. What's the problem? You know, we're a very mixed uh, lot as human beings, and and complex and uh that's wonderful and it's uh challenging and i think an appreciation and it's taken me a long time to get there and i'm sure i have lessons to learn i'm tempting fate right now by speaking as if i've arrived at some great wisdom but it takes time it's taken me time at least to realize i can't be as you were just saying buffeted about by you know by the mood by the by by either my ability or inability to meet people's expectations that there has to be I mean those things have to be handled of course but there needs to be and thank god there is god some larger purpose right yeah, that the church yeah. is serving um well there's this great you know that great aphorism by Ron Heifetz he says leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can stand Oh, that's great. Uh, and, you know, because you, you, you come in kind of, and they're all expecting that this will be the one who can walk on water. And we, in our on our side of the equation, think this will be the true church. And we're both going to disappoint each other. And at a rate they can stand is the key phrase, you know, is kind of not, not uh, you know, well, it turns out, yeah, uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm not God, uh, which is really good for all of us. And uh, but we, there are things we can do together with God's help. Well, that's really true. And my, and I've only served three churches, but but in each time, the real work doesn't begin until we've grown a little disillusioned with one another, right? Yeah. Or yeah. Maybe disillusioned is too strong of a word, but 
Recon- no, recognize the reality no, of who yeah, we are. Yeah, no, disillusionment is good. I uh, People, often they're very vulnerable to that, and, and we are too. You know, we, we're idealists, and, or at least I am. And uh, it, it, so, but when you think about it, to disillu- be disillusioned means to give up your illusions, which is painful, but uh, very helpful. You know, and and I think that uh, ministers, preachers will go through that. And there's life on the other side. Uh, there's real life on the other side. And if you don't make it to the other side, uh, you've given up too soon. You know, and, and you could probably say that for congregations, too. I mean, I think you were you were saying that in a, in a sense, you say to people in the congregation, listen, we're going to disappoint you. And, and that's true. And uh, we're, we're not the perfect church. Uh, you may have arrived here and think, oh, after all those churches, this is the one. Uh, no, we're going to let you down in our own peculiar way. And you're going to let us down, And but we live by grace. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, Tony, thank you so much for this time. I really appreciate your insights. And, uh, and as I said earlier, I personally benefited from them. Uh, and I know that our listeners are going to, too. So well, thank you. Million. Thank you. I, I love the podcast, and, and I'm uh, grateful for your ministry and for this church. Thank you. Thanks. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.